This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Karma. Intentional actions of body, speech, and mind. Which always have a result. Particularly a result in the realm of feeling. Generally, the result of our intentions is a pleasant or unpleasant feeling. It's kind of the Buddha emphasis. One of the one of the uh, most often quoted sutra excerpts from the old Pali sutras about karma is. Uh, in the short analysis of karma sutra and the middle-length discourses, Buddha says, beings are owners of their actions. Actions here is karma. Owners of their actions, heirs of their actions, born from their actions, related to their actions, and actions will decide their future. It's kind of a summary definition of actions or karma and how all-encompassing it is, how important a topic it is. And uh, in the numerical discourses, early teachings, Buddha says, what's the result of karma? The result is three sorts, that which arises right here and now, that which arises later in the next life and that which is arises following that in subsequent lives. This is the result of karma. So this karma in the three times is the old sutras. But here's where it starts to get a little different. We haven't heard this part yet today. Right after that statement, the Buddha says, after that statement of what's the result of karma, the Buddha then says, what is the cessation of karma? And he says, from the cessation of contact comes the cessation of karma. And the noble eightfold path, namely right view, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, is the path leading to the cessation of karma. From the cessation of contact comes the cessation of karma. Uh, so, uh, sometimes it's the case in these early sutras, they're a little cryptic and there's not much further explanation. But uh, contact, the Buddha generally talks about the sense faculties, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, um, come in contact with the sense object, color, sound, smell, taste, touch, or thoughts, mental objects. And when they meet, that's called contact, sparsha in Sanskrit. It's one of the 12 links of causation. And uh, interesting, that way I would interpret this is like, when there's that sense of duality, of a like subject and object, 
uh, an eye and a color, and when the, when the subject and object, the eye and the color, contact, um, that's like the birth of duality, you could say. And, uh, and when there's the cessation of contact, means like subjects no longer meet objects, then that's the cessation of karma. That's my understanding of this, this brief statement here. And the path of practice is the way to realize this. So let's say, well, if there's no contact, then how can we, how can we be alive? How can we do anything? If we, can't, if we can't see colors and hear sounds, doesn't that imply the contact? And if we can't do that, we, we can't really function. And yet, uh, maybe there can be life without contact. <laughs> what would life without contact be? Could it be just that there isn't really a separate subject and object, therefore there isn't really contact? It's like one whole that appears as eyes and colors, and appears as ears and sounds, but that those aren't really separate. So this issue of um, cessation of um, karma. Here's another sutra, also in these um, numerical discourses, the Nidana Sutta. Uh, the Buddha says, any action, any karma performed with non-greed born of non-greed, caused by non-greed, originating from non-greed. When greed is gone, that karma, born from non-greed, is thus abandoned. Its root is destroyed like an uprooted palm tree, deprived of the conditions of development, not destined for future arising. And then he goes on to make the same statement. Any action or karma performed with non-hate, any karma performed with non-delusion, born of non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion, that karma is thus abandoned and the root of the karma is destroyed like an uprooted palm tree. It can't grow anymore. The roots have been cut. That's another little clue about the ending of karma. Let's see. That sutra goes on even further with this, these metaphors to say, just as when seeds are not broken, not rotten, not damaged by wind and heat, capable of sprouting, well buried, planted in well prepared soil, and a person were then to burn those seeds. Maybe this is this origin of this idea of burning up karma, right? If one were to burn these seeds with fire and make them into fine ashes and then winnow the ashes in a high wind and wash them away in a swift flowing stream, those seeds would thus be destroyed at the root like an uprooted palm tree, deprived of the conditions of development not destined for future arising. 
any karma done with non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion is like burning these seeds so they can't sprout later. This is the ending of karma. So, not a lot of explanation about how exactly that works, but maybe we can get the sense of um, uh, actions that are um, not done by one who feels as if he or she is a separate self. They're just dependently arising actions spontaneously um, flowing forth from the causal series as the causal series of body and mind without um, without uh, reifying this causal series into a separate self, then such actions may be uh, leading to the end of actions or such actions may uh, be burnt at the are uprooted. So I, the sutras never seem to specifically say um, karma always involves the sense of a separate self. I haven't heard that said, but uh, it's kind of the way I understand it. And and I teach attention. Roshi has taught karma that way. Karma is 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 meant uh, by karma. What is meant is. Action, intentional actions done with a sense of being a doer, a separate doer, or a controller of the body and mind experience. And any um, actions done with a sense of a doer come to fruition later in the causal series of that person who thinks she's a doer. So, uh, I heard him teach an entire practice period, Tantahara, with that as. Oh, okay, yeah. So then it would make sense that if we don't hold this view of a, of a separate self, um, the whole thing becomes much lighter, this whole karmic problem of um, uh, the actions coming back to me, the doer, and uh, therefore starting to uproot karma. And doesn't it seem this way that again, in our just ordinary experience, that the more we have a sense of a separate self, which usually manifests as like, we do something and then I get totally self-concerned about, I, I, oh, I really mess, I am so bad, we call it self-judgment. Right? I really messed that one up. I, I, um, I can never forgive myself for this, and no one else should forgive me either. <laughs> I am evil, <laughs> and I did this, and like, oh, it's going to be so bad. And then it kind of is bad. <laughs> it's kind of like then, then, I, then we feel that way, and that feeling goes out into the world, and then somebody says, yeah, you did do that, and you are wrong. And, and, um, and, then, and then we feel even more guilty. We kind of take personally take the blame and so on. So um, the more we have a sense of the, of the separate self, the more the, whole, the effects of karma seem even more painful. And we don't want to go the other way to either and say, well, I, I have no responsibility for these actions because um, I didn't do them. It was a previous body and mind that did them. 
that's going too far the other way. Because that's the nice thing about this causal series of dependently arising body and mind is the middle way, free of the extreme of today's body and mind being completely separate and unrelated to yesterday's body and mind. That'd be one extreme that would be like taking no responsibility. And uh, the middle way is also free from the other extreme of this body and mind is the same body and mind as yesterday, the same independent, separate individual self. So those are two extreme views, and both of them have painful consequences. But this middle way of today's body and mind simply depends on yesterday's body and mind, which means it's not exactly the same and it's not exactly different. It's not completely separate or unrelated. It's related to yesterday's body and mind. And therefore, in the world, we can say that this today's body and mind is responsible for the body and mind that um, gave rise to it. Yesterday's body and mind that today's depends on. We kind of, the world kind of understands responsibility that way. And it's kind of in line with Dharma, I think, that, that uh, there's a relationship between today's and yesterday's. We might say that the world actually puts some extra self in there and says, it's not just the dependent body and mind that we're, that we're arresting today for yesterday's crime. It's you, the same person. Maybe most people wouldn't see it like that. Mm. Uh, well, I would say I work with uh, people who are mentally ill. And mm. When they get arrested doing something while they're really ill, yeah. sometimes they treatment and they don't necessarily get the same level of punishment. Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Really the same person. Makes sense, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we give them a little more slack because um, yeah, we, we understand that mental illness uh, there's, there's more confusion about that, about that causal series and, and um, taking responsibility for the previous day's body and mind in the causal series. Yeah, so it kind of makes sense that we that we, um, we have different kind of standards. Yeah, but we're kind of like, yeah. Well, if um, if most people can have some intuitive sense for the relationality of their causal series to yesterday's, then we're gonna we're gonna um, assume they have full responsibility for yesterday's. Yeah, I think there's some kind of almost ordinary rationality behind these things. So, um, so maybe that the ending of karma has to do with um, non-greed, non-hate, and particularly their root, non-delusion, about the separate self. And uh, I think, again, all, all this is kind of implied in, the, in this model of awakening in the early teachings of the Buddha where, uh, um, again, the goal seemed to be kind of, kind of like ending the causal series, ending rebirth. Now there is no more becoming here. Done is what had to be done and there's no more birth, the Buddha would declare, things like this. Uh, because there's no more... Um, 
there's no more karma done by a separate self. It has to come to fruition um, in the one who believes in a separate self. Something like this. So that's where we're, we're getting to in the story now of uh, ancestor Jayata. So um, Kazan goes on commenting here. Even though you already have faith in the karma of the three times, you still do not know the original root of karma. Karma has good and bad consequences, and there are different categories, such as ordinary and holy, and there are karmic results, such as the three realms, the six destinies, the four kinds of birth, and the nine existences, which is all all, all Buddha talk for um, different kinds of conditioned realms that are the results of karma. The three realms is... It's kind of like Buddhist cosmology, you could say, these things. You maybe have heard of some of these. Three realms is like the desire realm where we humans live, where we're kind of pushed around here and there by desires. And then the form realm and the formless realm are, are kind of the results of um, deep meditation states where um, we're, there's still sentient beings in these realms, but um, but they're just more refined. They're like they're heaven realms. They're deva realms, the form realm and the formless realm. But they're still the results of karma. Just the results of very good karma. They say if you want to be born in these form and formless realms of of the gods, practice wholesome actions, and the results of those wholesome actions, you'll be born in the deva realms and and have a very happy, happy life for a very, very long, long time. But they're impermanent too, so at the end of those long, happy lives, one then picks up where one left off, <laughs> reaping the results of previous karma from an eon ago or whatever. Um, so anyway, the three realms here is presented as a result of karma. The six destinies of six realms is... That, that's heaven realms, the, the wannabe heaven realms, which is like the Asuras, the fighting titans who are trying to get into heaven, storming the gates of heaven. And the uh, human realm, of course, we know. The animal realm, the hungry ghost realm, and the hell realms are the six, which are all results of karma. And uh, what were the others he listed? The four kinds of birth, born from a womb, born from an egg, born from moisture, which they, I think they thought that insects were sometimes born from moisture, kind of like primitive science. And uh, miraculously born, is like the gods are kind of spontaneously born. They don't have a, any gestation period in the heavens. And, uh, and the nine existences are the six realms plus the shravakas, Pratika Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. So, um, all these types of birth and life and destiny are results of karma. This karma, all of this karma, even the heavenly realms, is born from delusion, Kazan says. Delusion 
is hating and desiring what ought not to be hated and desired, or we could say grasping and aversion. Uh, affirming, it comes from affirming and denying what should not be affirmed or denied, or should not be judged. Delusion consists of thinking that what is not a male is a male and what's not a female is a female, which is an interesting phrase he threw in there with no explanation. And distinguishing oneself from others or separating self and other is delusion. Non-enlightenment means not knowing one's origin. He's going to use this word like non-enlightenment. It was in the original story, but no, sometimes we say um, uh, like ignorance in um, Sanskrit is avidya, and vidya is like knowing or clarity, and uh, in, in um, Chinese and Japanese. We say uh, avidya is mumyo, which I think is a good way to translate. Avidya means mumyo is no brightness or no clarity. And uh, so interesting that ignorance in Buddhism, both in the in the Japanese and in the Sanskrit, is a kind of a negative term. Ignorance is a it has either mu or ah the beginning, so it's not clear. <laughs> I guess, um, actually, English. In- ignorance is a good translation because I think an I, in this case, is a, is a negative um, prefix, right? And um, gnor is like gno- gnosis or knowledge, right? I- ignorance is um, very similar, actually. I think it's, it's a good translation of avidya and mumyo, not knowing. But here, uh, Kazan's inventing this word I've never seen before, non-enlightenment, fukaku. And um, kaku means like awakening, often used to translate, it means awakening, or also understanding. Fu means not. Um, So he kind of invents his own negative word for um, ignorance, non, non-awakening, not awakening, means not knowing one's origin or one's source, not knowing the birthplace of myriad things, missing wisdom or prajna in all situations. This is what's meant by non-awakening. <laughs> so... This implies we should know our origin, our source. We should know the birthplace of the myriad things. Kazan goes on, this mind is originally pure. So now he's referring to the second half of the original story. Um, To review from this morning, this was way back. The original case, the story of Jayata here, is that um, the 19th ancestor Kumarata said, although you originally, although you already have faith, 
in the karma of the three times, still you have not yet clarified the fact that karma is produced from delusion. Delusion exists as a result of dualistic consciousness. This consciousness results from ignorance. Oh, it is in here. Um, fukaku. Here uh, he translated it as ignorance, but actually that's the, this non-awakening. Dualistic consciousness, vijnana, results from not awakening. And this not awakening results from mind. And here's where the stories start to change here. Uh, mind is actually originally pure in this story. All this ignorance and deluded, dualistic consciousness all comes from mind, but now the story starts changing. The source of all these ignorance is totally pure mind. Mind is originally pure without birth or cessation, without doing or effort, without karmic retribution, without superiority or inferiority, and so on. This is the original stories so Kazan's commenting on. So, uh, this mind is originally pure, without thought, without an objective realm, without objects. Or another translation is, without conditioned dust, which kind of um, is a Zen word for dust is like the um, objects of the world, all these particles of external stuff. And uh, also hints at the Zen images of the mirror that you wipe clean from all this dust. And uh, the sixth ancestor says that there isn't really a place for any dust to collect. So that's what Kazan's saying here. This mind is without any conditioned dust. It's unsoiled by objects or conditions. We call this mind's one transformation non-awakening. This pure, all-embracing mind transforms into non-awakening. When one becomes aware of this non-awakening, one's own mind is originally pure. One's self-nature is vivid and bright, numinous and clear. If you clarify it in this manner, then non-awakening is destroyed and the twelve conditions of dependent co-arising are finally empty. The four kinds of birth and the six destinies, the six realms of sentient beings are forgotten at once, dropped off. The original mind of all people is like this. There is no separation of birth and cessation, no distinction between arising and cessation, no such things as making and doing. Therefore, there's no grasping and aversion, no increase or decrease. It's nothing but great stillness, great vividness. Stillness is jaku-jaku. Uh, so you could say like, um, like very 
very silent, very still. And um, here's his great intelligence, which was earlier translated as, as great spirituality. It's this word, ray. Um, it means like spirit, spiritual, um, but it's also sometimes translated as numinous. Numin- the noumenon is the, um, is the space before phenomena arise, something like that. Or uh, also translated somewhere here as um, uh, vivid, vivid or awake. It's, I think it's maybe hard. To, do you know this word ray in, in Sino-Japanese? I'm not sure what it is in Chinese. Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of complex, many-stroke character. They use it for Vulture Peak. Mysterious, I think. Um, magical. Magical, mm-hmm. Yep, magical, spiritual. Mysterious, exactly, that one. I think it's uh, maybe hard to translate into English. Um, all, the, all these words kind of hint at it. Um, I recently noticed that the, in, in modern times, they use this character to translate the Christian term, Holy, Go- Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what about intelligence? Intelligence. There is intelligence. Yes. It's a little different from... Uh, yeah, I know. These are all attempts at this translating this term. Um, yes, of intelligence. It seems to have something to do with clarity and mind and awareness. Knowledge and knowing. Yeah, some kind of knowing, but almost like not conceptual knowing. And there's a lot of other terms that mean these kinds of things too. Um, but it's a little more mysterious character. There's other characters that are more straightforward translations of that knowing and awareness and awakening. So it's one of them. Um, it's one of the words I think that he uses for that old fellow, <laughs> Buddha nature. Yeah, I think Kazan usually uses it in a positive way of, as a Buddha nature equivalent. It's one of one ter- character in his toolbox. Um, yeah. So, uh, kind of like, we've been talking all morning about um, conventional truth of um, the appearance of experiences of body and mind and how karma works and how the, the laws of cause and effect, all of this works quite nicely. The Buddha has many, many teachings, especially in the early sutras, about the workings of cause and effect and interdependence and um, uh, the way things in the world arise dependent on other things. But now we're moving into the territory of so-called ultimate truth where there are no things anymore emptiness but I think and um, I think that also Kazan uh, resonates with this more experiential way of talking about this ultimate truth not just as nothing at all 
but as um, ever-present awareness. It's a little more experiential twist, these Buddha nature teachings, than, um, than the Heart Sutra gives us, where it just says, well, there is no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, or no, 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 bodhisvaha. <laughs> you know, it doesn't give you much to go on. <laughs> it's just, um, and I think that's valuable too, right? That's saying everything we think is going on here is not. <laughs> um, but uh, then one might ask, well, what is going on here? <laughs> and that's why we have these more positive teachings, Buddha nature. What is going on here? Well, if we ask most basically, uh, what is going on here for each of us? Can we not say that we are aware right now? It's kind of bottom line. Uh, we're not sure about the status of all this stuff around us, whether it actually exists or not, but we know that we're aware. Awareness is present right now. And, uh, and we can be with this awareness, we can be this awareness. We are this awareness, so we can be this awareness. We can explore this awareness, we can appreciate this awareness. We can, uh, we can withdraw our, um, our attention and obsession with the 10,000 objective um, dusts of the world and um, turn the light of attention back onto itself and, and uh, notice <laughs> that we're aware. Sashin is so great for this. Isn't it? I heard a really good description. Reflexive anti-luminosity. Beautiful. And I thought, I, I don't know, I remembered it for a long time. Reflexive empty luminosity. Em- empty luminosity. We've, yeah. That covers, that covers three important qualities of awareness very nicely. It's reflexive. Reflexive is a little different than reflective. Reflexive means um, it knows itself. Reflexive awareness is... Um, awareness is always knowing itself at the same time as it might be also knowing other things. This was um, a proposal in early Mahayana teachings, particularly Yogacara teachings. They um, started proposing, it's a little different than Buddha nature, they were going sort of on a different track here. They proposed there's this reflexive knowing, reflexive awareness. Svasamvedana it's called in Sanskrit. Sva means self. And uh, Vedana here means like knowing. Um, so it's like self, a, there's a self-knowing aspect of, of awareness that's always um, the case. At the same time as mind is knowing objects, it's also knowing itself. And that became this controversial debate, uh, still is debated amongst Buddhist schools. Is there really such a thing? as the svasamvedana, like a self-reflexive um, 
type of knowing. Uh, and, and at the same time, there were these Buddha nature teachings that were not describing exactly what Buddha nature was, but just saying it's, um, it's unconditioned and it's free from all suffering and so on. So I think at some point these two teachings started coming together, reflexive knowing and Buddha nature. And now, now we can talk about these three qualities together. It's reflexive, it's empty, means um, awareness is empty of everything other than itself. It's empty of, um, of uh, qualities of coming and going. It's empty of um, the 10,000 things. It's empty of eye, ear, nose, tongue, and body. means eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, color, sound, and so on are not inherently part of awareness. They can appear within awareness, but they're, they're um, not needed. You can take away a color, and there's still an awareness. <laughs> so could say, this awareness is empty of, of, um, of all of these things, and ultimately it's empty of everything, but it's not exactly empty of itself, because it's, it's knowing itself. It's not nothing. So uh, it's empty in that way, and it is luminous, do you say? It's reflexive, empty, and luminous. Luminous, uh, usually in, the, in Buddhist language, means um, this knowing quality, cognizing, knowing, aware quality. Awareness is often compared to light, because actually awareness illuminates things and it illuminates itself. It's a little bit meta metaphor or analogy, um, but I think it's a good one. So thank you for that. That wasn't long, but I guess, but I remembered it. Yeah, um, it's very similar to this early Zen poem of the third ancestor, Song of the Trusting Mind, the Xin Xin Ming. And there, there's a, there's a great line. We could translate something like, it is empty, clear, and um, self-illuminating without any exertion of the mind's power, without any effort. So there's the same three. It's right there in the Shin Shin Ming. It's empty, clear, and self-illuminating, naturally and effortlessly. Yeah, that's a good way to reflect on on this, on what's happening right now. <laughs> yes, and and a few minutes ago you said um, uh, 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 withdrawing attention from objects. Mm -hmm. When referring to awareness, yeah, and I can't remember. But but when you said that, what I heard was what you began with was when there's no contact, that's the no karma. Yes, there's the connection. That's the mm -hmm. right. When yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, withdrawing attention from objects and um, doesn't mean suddenly there's no more color or sound. It's just we're attending all day long to colors and sounds and thoughts and emotions. All, these are all objects. 
we're just withdrawing a little bit of our obsessive attention with them, withdrawing it back into the source. And the more we withdraw from them, without them disappearing, but we're just we're shifting our our focus or our interest to that which knows these objects. And the more we shift that uh, that focus, uh, the more um, we can come to see that actually maybe there's some steps in the process here where we can come to see that uh, eventually that there really isn't contact with these objects. Um, one way we can because that might be a big leap of a thing to say there. <laughs> One way we could make that transition is to say that um, w- as we withdraw attention from the experiences, and you know, of course you're welcome to try this out as we're talking. It doesn't need to be quiet to try this out. It's quiet, it's nice, but uh, sometimes it's good to hear the details as we're trying it. So we're like... Um, Asking ourselves, is awareness present? That very question starts withdrawing the, the tendrils of stickiness that are going out to the sights and sounds and thoughts and emotions. It starts to withdraw them in order to answer the question, is awareness present? We're looking back away from the objects and, uh, and we, we can answer quite readily, yes, awareness is present. Um, even though I can't get a hold of it, I can't say what it is, I can't, it's not another object, so we might feel a little uncomfortable because we can't grasp it as another object, and yet we are aware, we're undeniably aware. So we're, we can confirm that awareness is present without, um, without getting a hold of it. And then we can start to explore the, uh, the nature of this ordinary, ever-present awareness, explore um, its boundaries. In other words, can we find any any edges to this awareness? Can we find anything, any quality of the awareness itself that is um, moving or like coming and going, arising and ceasing? There are many experiences every moment arising and ceasing, but uh, but we have to make a distinction here. We're, we're te- subtly teasing apart the difference between experiences that are that are um, happening in time, their impermanent arisings and ceasings of colors, sounds, thoughts, um, memories, emotions. All these these experiences are coming and going. Can we tease apart these experiences from the aware space in which they're happening? Luckily, we have a, a whole sashin to do this teasing apart. <laughs> and uh, we can, if we can tr- see how there's an ordinary, ever-present um, awareness that's not coming and going... Uh, it's the same ordinary awareness as yesterday, it seems to be. But the experiences have all changed. Now, when we say it's the same one as yesterday, 
we might think, well, then are we then talking about the separate self again? And um, we might be, so we have to, we have to discern. Um, if we're talking about the separate self, then it's some individual entity that's just my personal... If it were my personal individual awareness, then I think we would be talking about that Atman that the Buddha is refuting. So I think this is one, another part of our investigation, our subtle investigation is, um, is um, what would make me think that this awareness is personal? <laughs> it, it's not something that's happening in my conceptual mind or in the body because it's the, it's the unchanging one in which conceptual thoughts and the body are appearing. So we already can, can be sure from the beginning here that um, what we're talking about when we're talking about this awareness is uh, if it's something that's not coming and going, then uh, it's not the source of the body. Uh, or it's, not the, um, it's not happening in the body that's coming and going. Because the body is impermanent, right? So we're talking about something larger, more basic, more um, prior to our what we call the body and what we call thoughts and so on. Notice that bodily sensations and thoughts are constantly co- coming and going. So, so if we're talking about something that's unchanging, it's prior to them. The the relationship is that the body and thoughts must be happening in awareness rather than awareness is happening in the body and mind. This is really important to, to do this kind of reversal of our usual way of thinking. And uh, in order, partly again here, in order to, um, to clarify that what we're talking about is not some personal individual awareness. If it was located in the body, then it would be personal or if it was located in the center of the heart, some some Indian schools say, oh yeah, it's it's a subtle sort of essence in the heart of every person. Maybe an idea of a soul would be like that too, somehow in the body. And then I think that's what the... Any ideas like that, I think, are what the Buddhist tradition is saying. Yes, that's too graspable. <laughs> but if it's more like it's all pervading, there are no edges or boundaries. That means that there's no boundaries between so-called my awareness and so-called your awareness. And that maybe takes some work to, to investigate the edgelessness, the implications of edgelessness of awareness are, uh, imply that we don't have different awarenesses. And as soon as we don't have different ones, that we're sharing one ungraspable, inconceivable awareness, then we're back in the safety zone of Buddhism. <laughs> I, as I understand it, all these Anatman teachings, are, they never talk about this shared awareness. They're always saying, the, um, if, you, if you look really carefully, even in that later Indian tradition where the they get really into the Anatman teachings and people like Chandrakirti and um, different Madhyamaka teachers. They're always 
and they're going, getting into all different Indian Buddhist schools that teach an Atman, they're always saying that the Atman that's being refuted is an experiencer, an, a doer and an experiencer, which always makes it personal. And I, I think it's very interesting. That often gets overlooked when it's, oh, self, it all, the Atman of the, non, the non-Buddhist Atman, it all gets lumped together. But if you look at what, what, they're, um, what these philosophers are saying, they're always very careful to say that the, the Atman that the Buddha denies is some kind of personal experiencer or doer. And they even talk about um, versions of Vedanta Atman, but all these classic Indian philosophers, interestingly to me, if you look at the his history of this, they're all um, making their cases before the emergence of what we call Advaita Vedanta, which was, I think, in like the eight or eight or nine hundreds, something like that. So um, Advaita means non-dual, and the Advaita Vedanta tradition in India seems to imply more like it's, we're not really talking about a personal self. This Atman that that particular school is talking about is a more universal, shared, ungraspable awareness. And uh, so when I look at those teachings, I, it strikes me again and again how similar they are to the Buddha nature teachings. But it looks like all the classical Indian Buddhist philosophy all came prior to the advent of the Advaita Vedanta tradition, which was highly influenced by Buddhism, and vice versa. So I think they get, they get quite similar, and I've never heard a kind of Indian Buddhist teaching that really specifically says we deny um, an ungraspable, um, shared, universal reality of uh, uh, what we might call true self. This is like this is a, a long kind of um, scholastic footnote that you please excuse me for, <laughs> but uh, it's a, a topic that's very dear to my heart. Constantly trying to look into more and more. Is, is this uh, sometimes the term big mind? Yes, in Suzuki Roshi language. Big mind and and uh, all the places where Suzuki Roshi talks about that. Maybe sometimes it's not a, that clear what he's saying, but I think often it really sounds like um, something shared. Like uh, um, one place, um, Suzuki Roshi says, "There's something that's always supporting us, and that's um, mm-hmm. that's um, free of mm-hmm. of color and and." Um, and sound, I might even say like that, um, and uh, and we should trust that, which is always supporting us. I think he's talking about big mind in this way. And um, another place he talks about it like movie screen, and like we're so into movies, but we should pay more attention to the black movie screen. I think that's in um, not always so. There's a chapter on them. Zazen is like going to the movies or something. Something like movie in the chat in the title. And uh, so I think that's a nice way. That's a nice analogy, actually. The mirror or the movie screen. I think the same analogy. To talk now about ca- how karma fits into this story. 
So if we say this big mind is like is like the boundless screen on which all experiences are coming and going, and it's it's the ultimate truth of ungraspable, ever present, unchanging uh, suchness of screen, and then our life, everything that we can discern in our body and mind experiences. It's like the movie. So, um, so karma is like the workings of the movie playing on the screen, which I think um, works nicely because uh, we sometimes talk about the unity of the two truths, the conventional and the ultimate truth. They're not two separate realms, really. We talk about them separately, but if we make too big a distinction between them, we're missing the point. They're like two sides of one coin, and uh, I think that works nicely with this metaphor to say that the, if the ultimate truth is just um, empty, luminous, reflexive, self-reflexive awareness, um, then our, our the experiences of our life are like the movie that's playing out in that. And karma is like the movie playing out in that. But the movie and the screen are inseparable. That's the two truths. The movie is like the conventional truth of dependent arising, the interdependent um, workings of cause and effect are like, are like a movie playing on the unchanging screen. Therefore, the screen is free from cause and effect, right? It's the, it's the host of cause and effect. Um, but it's unconditioned. This screen is is. If it's always the case, that means it doesn't come and go according to conditions. But the, the stuff of our lives is always coming and going according to conditions. Can you follow this metaphor here? So, um, so dependent co-arising could be seen as like the conventional truth of how appearances work in the world. Inter, inter, the interdependence of all things is the, is the movie. And the screen is independence. The screen is not dependent on anything. The screen is like the source of all dependent phenomena. And um, karma, which is this whole, all the actions and their effects arising and ceasing according to conditions in this lawful kind of way, is like the movie. So therefore, we can hear, like in the original story, Karma is produced from delusion. Delusion is a result of dualistic consciousness, which includes contact. Consciousness results from ignorance. Ignorance results from mind. Here, mind is the name for this boundless, luminous, empty mind. Mind is originally pure, without birth or cessation, without doing or effort, without karmic retribution. Very, very still, very, very vivid, very, very empty, very, very luminous. There's two sides, and then, and then just a, for good measure, reflexive, self-illuminating. Yeah, this is a big, a big topic we just yeah. covered. You said there was debate about whether self-awareness was. I mean, awareness was, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is debate about that. Um, like, you know, in India, there's a Yogacara tradition, right? It's associated with mind only and Vasubandhu, the next ancestor coming here, and uh, Asanga. That tradition generally promotes the Svasamvedana uh, self-reflexivity, whereas the Madhyamaka tradition, the middle way teachings of Nagarjuna and Chandakirti and so on, um, generally don't like that one. Um, why? I think this is a huge, complex topic, but I, I, my understanding is the gist of why they don't like that one is um, their, their, their project is all about negation. They just don't want to leave you any slight anything to get a hold of. And they say if, if there's this, um, that this self-reflexive kind of consciousness is something that um, maybe some, it's, it's a making too much of a positive statement. To say, and to say that it's always there with every moment of perception um, gives some ground for starting to associate it with this Buddha nature. Also, these people like Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti, they're not into the Buddha nature teachings. So we, we call this like the second turning of the Dharma wheel, right? Is Nagarjuna, Prajnaparamita, no eyes, no ears, no, 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 no. And uh, it's the second turning of the Dharma wheel. The first one being that, like the Four Noble Truths. And so the early teachings of the Buddha, the first turning of the wheel. The second is this negation. And the third turning of the Dharma wheel doesn't negate the negation. It just says, well, we can say some things about what's going on here besides just negating them. Like, we can, start, we can talk about awareness the third turning people say so it's associated with the Buddha nature teaching sometimes it's associated with um, it's easy to go to nihilism I mean, yeah you, it prevents you, nihilism if you, if you, you know, look at Nargarjuna and I mean it, it tend, I mean I, when I read that I, I, I start to tend toward nihilism exactly I think that's part of the response of the third turning which um came later in Buddha's history. That's one story. Is it was partly a response to um, people like getting so into emptiness that it was turning into nihilism. And, and they weren't going to give any medicine for that because any medicine would have to be negated too. So we're like, this is going too far, some people thought, or maybe too, too dangerous. So the third turning comes in. Yeah. And I think Zen is influenced by both the the second and third, all three turnings of the Dharma wheel. But um, I think particularly uh, early Chan in China was really influenced by this third turning teachings. Maybe it's not fair to say, maybe really equally second and third. And if we look at Dogen and Keizan as our... Uh, Japanese Soto co-founders. I hesitate to say it because I don't want to put them in boxes, but maybe Dogen's a little more second-turning and Kazan's a little more third-turning. Emphasis. I definitely would say Kazan's a third-turning guy. I think Dogen, you find both. Dropping away body and mind. Yeah, dropping away body and mind. is. It doesn't say, oh, there's awareness. 
mean. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's a, and there's a lot of other um, emptying teachings in Dogen. But, of course, you find things like, I think we talked about here once, um, Radiant Light, Dogen's Radiant Light essay. Sounds a little bit like something positive. And, uh, and so on. So this is like this, this, so building on these early teachings about the cessation of karma, which is a, not really expounded on so much in the early teachings, but we might understand those early teachings as <coughs> referring to um, this kind of a um, larger view, more ultimate view. And then this story in particular is about both about Jayata having deep faith in, in karmic, how karma works in the three times, which he didn't really get at first. He's like, people do good, but they have problems. People um, do bad, and they enjoy it. <laughs> so he got, he got to build up his faith in the conventional workings of karma in the three times, and then he got to hear this, the other side of the story, the, the root, the source as Kazan says, um, <clears throat> non-awakening means not knowing one's source, not knowing the birthplace of the myriad things. So what's the birthplace of the myriad things? I think here he's talking in this positive sense um, as like the screen is the birthplace of the movie. That's what I hear him saying. That's our that's our our origin and source and the true the true birthplace. <laughs> the myriad things are born, but and you could say they're born from causes and conditions. They're born from death, and death is born from birth and so on. But um, the ultimate birthplace would be like the um, the um, the silent, silent, vivid, vivid realm of the big mind. Um, Kazan says, if you try to experience original mind, you cast away the myriad concerns and you quiet the many Involvements and conditions. This is like practice instructions now. Without thinking good or bad, just lower your gaze to the tip of your nose and look at original mind. <laughs> Maybe it's a little bit like turning the light around. Like usually our gaze is directed. Oh, there's a fan, there's the stuff. Like, we kind of like lower our gaze and keep lowering it back until we're looking. <laughs> it does sound like a, a, a little bit of withdrawal. A little withdrawal, yeah, of attention. Mm-hmm. Lower your gaze to the, to the tip of your nose and look at original mind. It says quite directly. When the one mind is still and quiet, all characteristics of things are exhausted because the root of ignorance is destroyed the branches and leaves of karma and its results no longer remain it's the ending of karma right 
we might even say it from this non-dual perspective, it's not like there are no, there's no causality of, um, of actions and effects, but we see all of that as like a kind of a dream playing out on the, on the screen of unchanging awareness. That's what uh, we say, all things are exhausted and the root of ignorance is destroyed. The branches and leaves of karma then no longer remain remain the way they used to, which is we really think that they're the way they appear to be. They, st- they can still appear, but we're not grasping them in the same way. That's how I would understand. So it's not nihilism. It's just a new perspective. But that's a nice image, huh? The root of ignorance, you could say, is cut. And then the branches and leaves of, of karmic causality uh, wither when the root's cut. Therefore, you're not bound by non-discrimination or discrimination, nor are you concerned with not thinking or thinking. It's neither permanence nor impermanence, neither ignorance nor purity. So all these dualities are, are, might appear on the screen, but the true nature is just the screen. There's no separation from the Buddhas, no separation from ordinary beings, right? Because it's both. Both the movie and the screen are simultaneous. So you're not separating from the Buddhas when you're involved in the movie, and you're not separating from the ordinary being when you're the screen, Arriving at this pure, complete realm, you will be true patro monks. If you are thus, then you're no different from the Buddhas. Patro monks is um, in Zen language for Zen monks. It's, it's kind of one of their code words. Um, there's other, there were other schools of Buddhism, right? But they, usually when they say patro monks, they're talking about the Zen people, which are they're kind of they're simple folk. patch their clothing yes if you are thus then you are no different from the Buddhas at this point all the conditioned and unconditioned are exhausted like dreams and illusions if you try to grasp it your hands are empty if you try to if you go up to a movie screen while it's playing and, and try to grab a hold of the birthday cake on the screen your hand comes out empty, right? If you try to see it, your eyes cannot take it in. If you arrive at this realm, you clarify the deep principle before all the Buddhas ever appeared in the world. And you arrive at a place where ordinary beings have not yet become confused. If your practice, one of Dogen's favorite terms here, sangaku, which means like um, thoroughly study. If your if your investigation, we might say, has not reached this realm, then even if you pay reverence to the Buddhas twenty four hours a day, and regulate body and mind while standing, sitting, walking, and lying down, this only results in excellent karmic results in the world. Mm-hmm defiled karmic results. Actually, it says, 
karmic results as a human or God. So it's kind of what we're talking about in the six realms. You become a, humans and gods are the best realms, the six realms. And we become humans and devas by um, good karma and good, good practice, um, like um, regulating, um, tuning our body and mind in these four postures and um, revering the Buddhas and so on. But that results in, in good karmic results but in the world of samsara. Uh, it's like chasing shadows. They're there, but they're not really real. Therefore, people practice energetically and clarify your original mind. And it says at the end, as usual, I have a few humble words. Would you like to hear them? Kizan ends every chapter with a verse. The verses, the camphor tree, as always, grows in empty sky, in empty space. Its limbs, or its branches, leaves, roots, and trunk flourish beyond the clouds. So this tree grows in empty space, and its branches, leaves, roots, trunk flourish beyond the clouds. Beyond the clouds is, is like beyond the conditioned world. So uh, a nice summary of the story, actually, because it's really about the workings of the branches, leaves, and roots of karma. And these karma, wholesome karma can flourish, but it really flourishes beyond the clouds because the, um, the tree is, grows in space. And why is it camphor tree? This is a kind of esoteric footnote from Griffith Falk. Um, Dungshan, our Chinese ancestor, the toe of Soto Zen, is um, Dungshan is a mountain where he lived, and the mountain was located in Yujang, Yosho in, in Japanese which means camphor tree. It's the same characters here. So um, it's probably one of these hidden references to um, uh, talking about a tree very nicely in this metaphor, but also this particular tree is the tree of our lineage, the, the Dungshan lineage. Um, it grows in sky. <laughs> The Soto lineage grows in empty space, but its branches, leaves, roots, and trunk flourish beyond the clouds. We're rooted in the understanding of emptiness. So I can imagine students, maybe some of them, conclude in that last paragraph with his saying, yeah, you can do all these Practices, mm-hmm. and enumerate some of them, and that'll and it'll get you some great karmic results. Yeah, you patched for a month, <laughs> um, and mm. practice energetically. Mm. Is his last sentence something to that? Practice energetically something. 
Practice energetically and clarify your original mind. Energetically practice clarifying your original mind. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. So I can imagine then he would have had some questions. About, <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so that specifically is that clarification of the, uh, your original mind, I'm sorry? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And he, and he might then have referred back, sorry, keep all this in my head, to something he had just said about, well, to the effect of, well, turn that light around, turn that attention around. And he said something to that effect. Well, that's how we clarify the original mind, that's right? Because right. the original mind is n- we're never going to find it out there. Right. We're not going to find it actually in somewhere either. It's unlocated, but, um, but by investigating, we can clarify uh, this reflexive, empty luminosity of the original mind. We can, and th- those are nice three aspects, actually, to clarify. Because, you know, we can leave it sort of vague. Yeah, original mind, I, this is it. I, I must be like this. Yeah. But I think it's nice to bring up a list like that and, like, and kind of carefully, one by one, does it, does it make sense experientially that, that um, this awareness is knowing itself? Can we kind of get a taste of what... What that whole tradition that talks about svasambhedna is driving at, and what do we mean by it's empty here, and what do we mean by that it's it's knowing? Yeah. Yeah, it feels like that element, that little. We know because that's where Dogen stops in the two kinds of Zengi, and surely they revered that text mm-hmm. there at Sojiji or well it wasn't maybe Sojiji but wherever he was at yeah. Kazan. So because that's where he it, so, okay, yes, you now you're knowing knowing. Mm-hmm. Turn the light around. Mm-hmm. Well, that's there in the Fukanza Zen. That's there, right. It's just not expanded on so much. And so you, yes, that's what I was mm-hmm. We can also say the Fukanza Zengi is, you know, Dogen's essential Zazen instructions and in a way, the center of that instructions, he calls the essential art of zazen, is, is think of not thinking. How do you think of not thinking? Non-thinking. This is the essential art of zazen. It's very cryptic, and I've seen probably like 10 or so different explanations of trying to get out what that means, and they're all totally contradictory. <laughs> totally contradictory. So I think it really is open to interpretation. Part of the Zen style is not explaining things so directly, right? Leaving it's a koan, comes from a koan, but um, we could hear that um, that central art of zazen as um, a sort of playful way of using this idea of thinking, of um, think or attend to or um, investigate that which is not thinking investigate the source of thinking so could we could hear it as turn turn the light around and think of or really explore and investigate the realm that is that has never thought before the realm from which all thoughts arise and how do you do this investigation of the not thinking realm you do it without a lot of like conceptual thinking you do it with non-thinking, 
Dogen, Dogen Altois says, when we think of not thinking, we always use non-thinking to do that. <laughs> Which is, you could say, a, um, we, we do this exploration in Zazen. It's not, in, right now we're doing it with lots of words, but we can explore it more and more experientially. Seems like I mean I feel like Dogen has that sense of illumination. Yeah. Too. Totally. Thinking of like Lancet. Yes. Sitting meditation, Mm -hmm. clear all the way to the bottom, and the fish in this. Yes. Endless. Yep. There's a lot in the in in, um, in Dogen's teachings that are implying this kind of thing too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't see any. I don't see any contradiction in these ancestors. They're just different points of emphasis. So I suppose it's good to yeah. to take it all up. Yeah. In the future, I'd love to hear from you, whatever, about that, the, the exploration, the investigation, the clarification. And we already are talking about that a little bit, too. but it, it, um, but um, you know, because we so often hear that. Yeah, so she's saying that. Yeah, yeah. They, they say that a lot. Yeah, yeah Dogen says so it a lot. So, yeah, can you get a little more specific now? Mm. We're ready for that, yeah. Mm. Now can you get a little more specific? So anytime, yeah, I'd love to know where others are kind of elaborating a little bit. Yeah, yeah. specifically do you want us to investigate? Yeah, yeah. Well, we did talk about it a little bit today, right, of like these kind of, um, these explorations of, um, you know, Asking ourselves, is awareness present? Mm-hmm. And then yes. getting some sense of it, and then um, starting to explore can I find any edges or boundaries? Yeah. Can I find any coming and going? Does it, is it awareness seem to be something that's changing? And really, like, spend some time yeah. with this to, to um, well, there's a lot that's changing here, but that's why I say te- this teasing apart that I was talking about, teasing apart the difference between experiences that are coming and going and this aware space in which they're coming and going really almost almost you can even artificially um, imagine these two just to get a sense for what we're talking about and then check out if your imagination seems totally far-fetched or if it's like no that's actually it's just I was just trying on a new way of seeing things but the more I try it on the more it's like it makes more sense than any other way of seeing things. So these are ways of investigating. Yes? The reference to the camphor tree mm-hmm. brought to mind Dongshan's enlightenment experience where he's looking at the stream and, and it's mm-hmm. like, uh, you, you, uh, you are not it, but it is you. Yes. So it points to this something larger. Yes. Without boundaries. And, totally, yeah. totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was planning to bring up that Dungshan story in, in uh, tomorrow's talk on the next ancestor, Vasubandhu. So um, now we, we know, now we're, we like, are a little more intimate with Jayata Daiosho. So we like rattle through those long list of names. Like, I know that guy. <laughs> He's the one who clarified karma. That old fellow. That old fellow, Jayata. <laughs> Thanks for your attention. Oh, yes. I just wanted to say, I think, 
wanted to point out that for people who if you want to look at some of these books in terms of studying and during the break, that they're up there. There's two translations of Jane Coroku and then Ruth Redcliffe for that uh, case that you This one is the one we're we're working from here, um, Francis Cook, yeah. The other one is interesting because it has uh, the way that it's translated, it's uh, from Shasta Abbey and it has all caps for like these terms that are indicative of Buddha nature or you know big mind always in all caps. Yeah. yeah. Totally, totally. That's what she, almost like she's like that seems what Kazan's really into. So let's just like really emphasize what he's doing. Or yeah, every time that there's some positive expression for Buddha nature, it's it's caps. You can see what. Um, Who's the translator? It's definitely like a kind of funny language yeah. that we're not so used to. Like from like Shasta Abbey, it's Shasta Abbey language. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Shayata. Uh, uh, yep. The caps here, original mind, it, <laughs> and uh, yeah, original nature, and oh, and source, and true nature. These are all the caps. And the gardener told us about those people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch out for the capitalizers. <laughs> Capital letters are, are um, susceptible to grasping. <laughs> Be careful of them. 